Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Did you know that the great philosophers were the original foodies to eat or not to eat? That's an easy question to answer, but what to eat? That's a deep and profoundly difficult one. Doctors and nutritionists often disagree with each other, while celebrities and scientists keep pitching new recipes and special diets. No one thought to ask the philosophers, those rational souls devoted to truth, ethics, and reason, what they think until now. That's exactly what Martin Cohen does in his new book, I Think, Therefore I Eat, The World's Greatest Minds Tackle the Food Question. It's a great book, and Martin and I had a great conversation about it. He's a writer, editor, and reviewer with an international reputation for explaining complex issues which cut across boundaries in a clear and entertaining way. I give you Martin Cohen. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Your book, I Think, Therefore I Eat, I mean, it. titles are interesting because you say the world's greatest minds tackle the food question, but the book is sort of, I, I, I feel like a plea for people to just think holistically about what they eat. Like it's more descriptive than prescriptive. You're not selling fad diets or, or, or pitching one kind of panacea. You're just asking people to be reflective about what they eat. Yeah, no, you, you're exactly right. I mean, there's so many food books, but they're all really saying, um, in a, this, as I say, dogmatic way, some particular answer. And um, often um, the sense I get from them is that the people don't even know the terrain when they do it. They've identified a view and then they're pushing it. And it's a very, um, it's, it's actually very dull to read books like that. So my whole point was to do a broad survey and to show people an amazing amount of issues are there, all intertwined. And there's so many very clever people who haven't made very good sense of it. And I'm not saying I've made sense of it, but I've surveyed. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, I, it, I mean, if Socrates says, right, like the unexamined life is not worth living, you're kind of saying the unexamined plate is not worth eating. Like, it doesn't – you're saying – you're, you're not really – you could go paleo, you can go vegan, you can go whatever. As long as you know what you're doing when you're doing it, you, that you're going to have a more enriched consuming experience. Yeah. Um, it, it's also like I, I feel people have um, lost something in, in this century or in, like, in the last, last uh, 70 years or so. People used to do sort of cook at home. And it sounds very old fashioned to say about people should cook at home. But the fact is when people don't cook at home, They've lost control of what they're an element of their lives. And I trace it back in the book a little bit further to, to Thoreau, who, who found that although he could eat all sorts of different things, he actually liked eating just green beans. And the reason was that he'd grown the green beans. So he planted the little seed and he'd watered it and he saw it grow. And then he and, and there's something about that, that which it's like the reconnection with nature that we've lost or we've thrown away. Yeah, the novelist Barbara Kingsolver, I think she and her family chose for a year to eat only locally. So, you know, and they learned, I mean, now, right, we eat like in January in the mid-Atlantic United States, you can go to the 
grocery store and get strawberries. So you have no sense that normally these things were seasonal and they came and went with time. And, and, and we, you know, like the, that, that there's a relationship to the environment that you, you, we just think like strawberries come from the grocery store. Like most people don't even know what kind of, yeah. where they grow, what they look like as the seeds are gestating and that we're, we're so disconnected right from our environment. Yeah. I, I, I mean, to me, I was lucky because I was brought up um, where I was really introduced to strawberries, picking them in fields. And to me, the strawberry is always that sort of um, a, a natural object. And you only got it, as you say, in two months of the year. Um, and I now eat strawberries a lot if I see them in the supermarket. But it's got that association. It's a sort of mental thing. So my mental understanding of the strawberry increases my enjoyment of the physical object. And I, I sort of think what people have done is they've thrown away the, the mental side of eating and they've gone for a sort of chemical and biological approach. It doesn't actually fit the human. It's only part of the human function to, to do that. It's interesting. In one chapter in the book, you talk about this one study where they went, they put people on a similar caloric intake, some high protein, some low carb, some high carb, some low protein, some mix, and basically the results were pretty similar. That that the 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 caloric intake was consistent, and so that the that you could play with all these variables and still actually have similar results, as opposed to this dogmatic. Well, it has to be low carb, or it has to be that you know that that basically that, that things are more complicated than oftentimes the diets that get pitched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That reminds me of Marlene Zook, the, uh, I think she's a biochemist. And she, she's American, and, and she was looking at the paleo diet, but she was looking at it from a historical or, you know, going back to ancient people's perspective. Um, and the point she makes is that people historically have evolved to eat very different diets. So some people, you know, ancient peoples lived off fish a lot. Some people lived off gathered fruits. Probably almost no one lived off hunting, but nonetheless, there would have been some who had a higher proportion of meat. Um, and there, some of them had, had grains because they gathered grains even before we had farming. So you, the point she makes is that clearly, <laughs> biologically and over evolutionary term, we are used to eating a range of things. And our, our ability to eat the different things is much greater than, than people are accepting. It's quite remarkable how much we can eat, in fact. It's almost our, our most uh, wonderful human achievement. Yeah, and in, in your section on the paleo diet, I mean, I, I, as I was reading, I was thinking it's almost like the protological mistake, right? Like it, 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 it assumes that what we did uh, at one seat, well, as you're saying, A, the, the, proto the protology is more complicated than people sell, and B, this is part of evolution, like if, if, fit beings can often evolve and, and, and learn to function off lots of food. So the idea that we could find some golden age and yeah. then, and then repristinate it and keep it, it's just, it, it, it's kind of unreflective. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's also this sort of logical fallacy, the, the naturalistic fallacy that if people used to do something over say 10,000 years ago, um, then we should be doing it now, but it's, there's no link between the two things. Um, and, for example, the sort of thing about milk, well, that's not natural, it's bad. Um, it's actually people who think milk is bad for some other reason 
or, or, or maybe just uh, no reason at all, but they've decided milk is bad, and then they're looking for arguments. And you see that so often in food that people go hunting off for an argument to fit a prejudice. Isn't that how humans work on lots of issues? Like we're 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 oftentimes. I mean, I I heard a, a study last year that was talking about how unreliable exit polls are. There, it was a moral psychologist saying, like, basically, people make emotional decisions about voting, and then when you get them in the exit poll, they're rationalizing the choice they made, saying that's why they did it on the front end. As opposed to most of the time, we, what does Jeff Goldblum say in The Big Chill? I forget his character. He said, a human being can get through a day without food or sex, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization. And so much of that, right, is how we eat, too. Like, we just, we, yeah. we rationalize. Yeah, I, I, look, I looked at it in another book, Liz, because it, I came across the idea um, in relation just to ordinary family who has a great big four-wheel drive car. And there's, there's lots of people, we see them around now with great big, all-terrain vehicles and the thing is if you say why why have you got that great big car it actually probably costs you a lot of money because it's inefficient in petrol it presents a hazard to other road users um but they've always got as you say a rationalization for it it'll be something like you know well we sometimes go camping which they don't you, you look at the facts of it you see they don't go camping um or it might be that we, we actually need to fit in our bicycles they don't go cycling but nonetheless that, as you say that's that's the thing people have a rationalization but it's irrational their rationalization yeah and they would actually maybe enjoy driving it more if they just said i like a big car yeah right yeah. the, the honesty is lacking or the self the self-knowledge is lacking and of course coming back to food that's very true with food that people will have or they will eat things they don't actually like because they're not being honest with themselves. It's interesting. You have a great chapter on bread, and my wife has taken to um, yeah, yeah. making sourdough bread. And and oh, yeah. but part of it, she's like, look, it can't be that gluten is all bad. I mean, there's got to be something that we're doing because people ate bread for centuries. And, and you know, maybe yeah. you have a great chapter too that says it. Be careful the chemicals that aren't or the ingredients that aren't in the food, like not just yeah. what is. And and so yeah. oftentimes things like bread, which have existed for has existed for millennia some of yeah. the sort of way we make it now has changed it like but the thing itself like people demonize bread well maybe it's something about the way we make it that, that, that yeah. is, is making it problematic yeah yeah no lots of people the, the whole gluten the anti-gluten thing is a strange one uh, there's a couple of things like this we, we've sort of become um as frightened of things and we don't actually know what they are they're, they're chemistry um <laughs> so that the, the whole margarine thing was a bit like that if you remember that one um, so people were told butter um had to be dangerous i've seen articles just recently about how dangerous butter is on cholesterol grounds in the new york times they were they were running that line um but the argument is based in, on chemistry and to be honest uh, the broad issue is you might you might be a very good chemist, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you know anything about how the human body works and vice versa. And yet we as ordinary people, we've been given these terms, these um, complicated often words. We, we pick up the word and learn it obediently. But we, we, we're disempowered by the whole discourse. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, a great British literary figure, said, you know, he said when you're teaching 
old books to students. It's not the words that they don't know that are the problem. Because if they're a decent student, they'll just look it up. It's the words they think they know. Uh-huh. And, and so, right, like, and that's often what we're saying. Like, we we take a lot of have truths, a lot of uh, bits and pieces of, of of partial knowledge, and then try to sort of make a it, 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 try to get to understanding from there, as opposed to actually trying to do some critical thinking, um, which is actually we're more capable of than that's a part of, I take it kind of the underlying premise of your book is people are better thinkers than they think if they give themselves time to do it. I think it's this idea that actually people are all more equal. Um, so you, the line between the expert and the the ordinary person is, is, is only one piece of paper. And often the, the broad view is underrated. It's a whole cultural thing that, that, is the specialism is elevated over the broad and the connection, interconnections. Now, ordinary people, in fact, the less you know, the more able you are to make connections because your mind is less cluttered up. And I, I, I think with um, something like food, um, we're, we're surprisingly quick to, to follow and surprisingly slow to try and take an independent line. Um, the whole history of, of food is, is the sort of... Um, Fads, after all, I mean, it's almost as cliche, isn't it? The food fad. But if you take like the uh, the sugar one, um, which has come back, you know, um, where they're actually trying to stop people having sugar, I find it bizarre because we know that a glass of fresh orange juice is equivalent to say five teaspoons of sugar, and <clears throat> if it's bad for your sugary drink that comes out of a can, it's probably bad in the form of an orange juice. And the fact is, probably they're both perfectly acceptable, and it's a sort of um, it's a sort of a prejudice we have against um, modernism in a way that's partly coming in. Um, also, did you see what I mean? I mean, <laughs> partly we the whole paleo thing is about that that we've got a sort of sense of going back into some lost time, um, but we have this prejudice against the new and the modern. <clears throat> And yet, at the same time, we've got a completely contrary thing, which is where we b- believe in the scientists and we believe in the new food. So we prefer a, a, a low-fat um, artificial margarine to, to butter, for example, or we might prefer some cheese that has been heavily pasteurized to some sort of one in the counter, which has got sort of moldy edges. And so I think we're very conflicted. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, too, you you have this great chapter that correlation is not causality. And there, I feel like a David Hume is a running kind of hero in the book, although culinarily he was yes. not the, the most creative person, but, but that you point out, but human beings are addicted to causality, right? We, we, because we have yeah. big frontal lobes in our brain, like we want to say, well, this caused that. And very often it's just mythology. Like we, cause we like a world that makes sense to us. And, and some of it is like, even if these things are, popping up all the time in relation to each other that doesn't mean a causes b they just might crop up next to each other and that yeah and that's a disorienting reality for most people right that, yeah. that, that we, it's hard to prove causality yeah now it's interesting that you put your finger on that aspect because it increasingly i see it everywhere this this discourse where there's always some simple causation assumed um and that is clearly, it's a psychological thing. Uh, it's almost like an infantile thing. The infant learns that when you, you throw the wooden toy at the wall, it, it either makes a noise or it breaks or something. But we, we, we have learned that things have this 
this um, simple structure, but the, in fact they don't have that structure. We, we, we've applied uh, our thinking inappropriately to so many complex processes, and with particular with something like um, like the, the, the how to lose weight one. You know, we have people who there's no shortage of them. They'll say like you just you reduce your calorie intake and you would lose weight. And there are people who appear to lose weight using these <laughs> systems, but people so it must be millions and millions of us who have thought well we we have we've reduced our meals slightly and yet we actually put on weight and <laughs> that's a very a very um direct um experience of why the world it is so much more complicated and of course what's going on in terms of dieting might be that your metabolism has slowed down or that the bacteria in your tummy <laughs> have reacted unfavorably um, all sorts of things. It's so complicated. Uh, but we, we have that built in. We say, well, look, I, I, in that case, I've reduced a bit and I got fatter. I'll reduce a bit more. And <laughs> we, don't, we don't have the flexibility to think outside this. Uh, it's almost a straitjacket we've created for ourselves of causality. Do you think like the, the human addiction to causality is related to our desire for control? Like if I if I can... Just if I can point to a cause and effect, then I have a sense of more control over my universe because I now I know what causes this, and and, and even if it's a, a mythology, at least I feel like I'm in control. Yeah, I, I think it's it's partly that, and it's partly a logical thing. And it, I'll give you an example from logic, which is you have a logical argument like all red berries um, are dangerous. That's your first statement. It looks true, and then the next one is. Sorry, I should have said that again. Red berries are dangerous. That's the statement. The next one is raspberries are a red berry. And then the conclusion is raspberries are dangerous. Now, <laughs> I misphrased it first of all, but you see the point. I gave you away the point there. Um, the point is that our language is, is not specific and it could be all red berries or it could be some red berries. The statement is not what we would call true. Um, but with causation you've got that sort of logical problem that you 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 simplify things in such a way that you eliminate or or really you eliminate what makes something real and you end up talking about a false um world in which your causation is working i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you. David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, 
Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenning, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So for you, did the love of food come for, cause you see, I mean, you seem like somebody that appreciates food and you appreciate philosophy. Was the love of food first, love of philosophy? I mean, which, or, or did they cr- gr- they like kind of grow up together or? Yeah, I came at, I came at it more from philosophy. In fact, I, I, I came years ago. I, I, I used examples in a philosophy book, um, uh, really, I was talking about the tobacco debate, and it was about how how an imaginary country started demonising sugar, and how they started to put out adverts to put people off sugar, and how they sort of um, did all these things that we've seen in the tobacco industry and to cigarettes, but at this time applied to sugar. And my point was that at the time, my point was that we wouldn't think it was reasonable to do it with sugar. So why do we think it's reasonable to target tobacco? But the point has got completely... <laughs> the reality is, has turned it all upside down because people, in fact, say it's good that we did it to, to tobacco and now we're going to do it to sugar as well. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I, come at, I came at food as a, a sort of, well... How can we take all these ideas in philosophy and, and, and yet take take them and look at the food question and see see it in a very practical, concrete way? So it's interesting that you use that analogy because the, 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 maybe control, causality, also anxiety. Like if something makes us anxious, rather than understand it, sometimes, well, if we just do a prohibition, that will keep us safe. We're, we're, well, you're, it seems like what you're saying is now we would do better thinking about stuff than using prohibitions in blanket ways because things are just really complicated yeah uh, people do this is it yes it, it's um what they sometimes use the term manichaean distinctions we like to put everything into very simple black and white categories and you've got the tobacco now that is firmly and it will never come out of it in the in the evil category <laughs> um and sugar's been put there as well but of course it, it doesn't make any sense to put sugar in there as i mentioned the the fruit juice <laughs> or your apple um and and yet people people want to split the world up like this um uh, the paleo diet does it it puts uh, farming and dairy into this evil category and uh, uh, i i think that's a fundamental that's a fundamental thing about people that they, they want to it's not enough to find what's good they want to find something bad yeah, and it's interesting too, right? Like with something like the paleo diet, people lose weight, but but how much of it is the what they're intaking, and how much is it just like okay, you can't eat Snickers bars and a bunch of uh, high processed sugar that's like you know that maybe you ate a lot of. So really, is it the diet or just if you would just yeah. not eat you know eaten the readily accessible super sugar food, it would you would you would have this a similar effect maybe. Yeah. Now that's that's interesting, Scott, because. There's been things like these taxes on sugary drinks, which you might think I keep repeating the same example, but it's a slightly different example. Like there was um, one country, I forget where it was, might have been somewhere in South America, like Brazil, um, and they put something like a 50% tax on, on those um, tins of fizzy drinks. And they found that there was a dramatic improvement in people's health and uh, that people lost weight. 
And they said, you know, the, the tax made the government a lot of money as well. You know, it was politically a very good move. But they actually did measure. The people dropped off, they stopped drinking the drinks, and they ate more vegetables and so forth. But what was never reported, and this went into so-called serious journals, and I'm complete, completely uh, sceptical about these journals, by the way. But anyway, what was not really reported was that the government's policy of a 50% hike in the price of fizzy drinks was accompanied by other policies. So it was accompanied by... Um, making, for example, fruit and veg widely available by um, visiting schools and, and telling all the children to eat fruit and veg. And uh, a, a huge number of initiatives are all packaged together. And I think that often goes on. There's, there's too many factors, and yet people are simplifying it for the media particularly, um, and also for their own interests, because obviously it's in the interests of government and researchers to to appear to have a convincing cause and effect relationship. It's interesting. Norm Macdonald, I heard him interviewed recently on the Howard Stern show. And they were like, there, somebody was saying that comedians are modern day philosophers. And he's like, well, there actually are modern day philosophers still. <laughs> but I, I mean, I take that as a sort of undercurrent of the book that like, we don't take philosophy very seriously anymore as an academic discipline. Like it's not, you know, if, if you, if your kids say, I'm going to go to university and study law or medicine or, you know, maybe even engineering, that's good philosophy. Oh my God. That's like, but, but you're, I mean, philosophy actually has relevance, right? Like if we actually studied great thinkers and, and the way they were able to think about phenomena in, in rigorous ways, we'd, we'd actually eat better, live better. We could actually have more of a handle and that'd be, it would be rewarding. Yeah. Well, that, that's the, one of the things in the book is that the connection of food and philosophy is completely um, heretical now because people would say, no, no, philosophers... They don't do food. Um, they, they do um, lo logical manipulations and things. Um, but um, historically, philosophy has always been about uh, making connections and examining arguments in the broadest sense. Uh, and it, it's sitting there really like as a sort of glue in lots of disciplines. So you see people, um, let's say it's a, a biologist who does the bio, human biology and what, like, like Marlene Zuko, I mentioned, um, sooner or later they will produce an argument. And at the point they're producing an argument, it is a kind of philosophy. And if they produce a really ratty argument, like we were just discussing, <laughs> they've, they've produced cause and effect out of something that should have been treated differently, um, then, then they would have helped if they'd had a little bit of a philosophical training, or at least if there was a philosopher who said, just a minute, that argument doesn't hang together. Um, there's, I've seen so many things presented in, in – we see it all. I mean, we all see it in the media, the scientists and people trotting stuff out. And really, it doesn't stand up to this broader examination. It stands up very well if you look at it in the detail. That's right. If you ignore all the big questions and you look at the details, which are statistical significance and things like this. But when you look at the broad thing and you see that the, 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 the grounds they base – or started on were wrong, and you you start from the wrong point, and you'll never get anywhere. Yeah, Susan Neiman wrote a book a few years ago, a history of philosophy of evil in the modern world, and what she points out in the book is that you know from the Lisburn earthquake to the Holocaust, like you know natural and and moral evil, philosophers have shied away from talking about evil. But she's here's the problem that 
anytime we use is and ought language, evil's in the background. So like, even though you suppress it, we still have normative language that, and the things that keep the ought, the is from being the ought is something like, you know, inevitably we get into the problem of evil. And she's like, it would be better to like bring it back in and talk about it than try to suppress it because then it always will worm its way back in and will be unreflective about it. And I mean, I take that as sort of a running theme in your whole book. Like, when you suppress things, they don't go away, right? They're, they're still there. So better take the time to think about it. Mm. Um, also, the, the whole is, is not distinction is very, is, is a problem, you know. I mean, we create that distinction. Um, and, and in reality, there's a, there's a, um, a continuum in all things. Um, and where, <laughs> when, when you want to split the world up, you create um, a, a good and bad as you say so it's it's very much uh, the good and bad i think uh, myself is what you start with and then you derive is and ought later from that it's the other way around and so we have to accept it's our values that are determining the reality around us if you were going to have a meal with any philosopher if you could pick one like bill and ted's excellent adventure getting a time machine who would it be ah well, <laughs> um I, I think if it was in terms of enjoying the meal, um, I think it would probably be Rousseau. Um, Rousseau, and I, I find a sort of empathy in what he writes. He talks beautifully about food, and he, he talks about the pleasures of a picnic, for example, where you, you wrap up some cheese and a bottle of wine and a loaf, and you go out for a picnic. And the point he makes is that the food is not really the important thing there, it's something. It's it's a whole occasion, and and so that I think is absolutely right. And, and, and in terms of food, is it also what Thoreau was saying? You know, beans are actually very boring, but if you've got a special link to those beans, <laughs> suddenly they become quite nice to eat. So it's it's all about um, we should we should enjoy our food. And when we go in a supermarket and we see all these brightly coloured things that have um, come from all over the world and are out of season and <laughs> have got added. Things like, um, you know, antifreeze added to them. Um, when we're eating like that, we're we're cheating ourselves, and we're losing all the pleasure of what food should be about. Yeah, and I, I take it like we're integrated beings, right? Like head, heart, emotion, bodies. But yet, modern life disintegrates us all the time. Like, so, like it, it's it's always cutting up and 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 dissecting us you know like we live in one context we uh work in another we worship or play or our romantic involvements or another we're and and some of it what you're saying is like if if we were more present head heart emotions embodiment mm. to what we're eating it would just be richer like that that that, that in certain sort of historical epochs like this was the gravity pulled you more towards that in a way that it almost pulls us against it now yeah I mean, there's two sides to it. As we were saying, you know, everything's got a sort of shouldn't split things up too simply into good and bad. But um, for instance, Sartre, who is in the book briefly, he he actually says that he likes tinned. He'd prefer to have tinned fruit over real fruit. Um, and I can re I can remember actually liking tinned fruit. Uh, um, nowadays, I wouldn't dream of it. But so something's gone on in my head that has put me off tinned fruit. But Sartre interestingly expresses this childish feeling which is that the fruit which has been made into something very different from where how it would appear in nature and is put in a sugary syrup as well 
and it's always fresh and convenient. You know, it stays in the carpet for months on end, and you can just pluck it out. Um, and he said that's progress. That we 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 should eat food. This is the modern food. Um, so I I quite like the idea that there is something in what we've created in in the modern world. You know, um, a packet of crisps. <laughs> Which um, Michael Moss and people are uh, are so disgusted by because they have that that addictive element that you have sugar and not sugar salt and vinegar just at the right amount, <laughs> you know. But we we should we should also um, be prepared to say that we like sliced white bread over um, a, a proper organic loaf <laughs> because people do. But having said that. <clears throat> Having said that, there's something in what we've created in our modern world. To to, to get anything out of even the modern foods, we, I think you need to have some control over it. So that if if all you eat is junk food, you you are not choosing to eat it. You become sort of a, a prisoner of it. And I, I find that like if you go on a, a trip, like traveling, and you can't cook for a, say a, a week or something, all you can do is have little things that you buy quickly from bars or something. I, I, I find it's bizarre how how oppressed I am at the end of that week, and I really want to just go and chop up something in the kitchen. Because you lost up. agency, right? I mean, there's something about yeah. a human being that delights in agency. Like, like yeah. I mean, but it's, it's interesting, though, because sometimes we can lose it and don't know what we lost, but then when we experience it, we're like, oh, I have agency now. I mean, agency, and then you could eat the sliced white bread and say, this is just what I like, but you're eating yeah. it as an agent. It's not eating you. Yeah. You're, it's not consuming you. You're consuming it. Yeah, you, you, could, you could imagine you visit someone who's a very keen cook, and every meal is a proper meal, and then you get back to your house, and you will make beans on toast, to use the, the English favorite dish. You will open a tin, and you'll have a few slices of bread, and the pleasure is there in, in a return to this, I suppose, uh, I suppose partly the control, but, but also there's something beyond that that you actually do prefer um, these, these, are, these artificial foods sometimes. And that's something to do with having a mix of everything. Yeah, one of the things that's most interesting to me in the book, you have a chapter on fasting, and you explain why actually when you when you fast after a certain period, your body like runs out of nutrients, and it actually consumes cells that have toxins in them or something. And so yeah. there's something to this purification of fasting. Actually, your body self kind of cleanses by consuming sort of cells that aren't pulling their weight yeah. for energy. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that's interesting research. I, I found that very interesting. At the same time, I found other research, which was going the other way, which was saying, when you fast, your body consumes cells that you do want. <laughs> and I, I never managed to solve that one. My, my impression was that you had to be very careful when you give your body any kind of a, a food shock. Um, probably a fast like a 24-hour one is okay. But I've, I've seen people talking about, you know, longer fasts. Um, and it's, it's probably very unwise what goes on. You see, you see them recommending radical diets, for example, you know, um, might be fruit only for a week or something. Fruit only for a week, your body will be struggling and it will be destroying all sorts of important parts to, to adapt. When you go to dinner parties, are you like, 
a Socratic provocateur? I mean, are you asking people like, hey, why are you eating those cheeses and, and meats or why? I mean, or do you play gadfly or do you just or do you just kind of do this stuff yeah. literarily? No, I would. I, I, I wouldn't really talk about food when you're eating food. And that's in itself something, isn't it? Why? Why? It's, it's sort of inappropriate to talk about food in that sense when you're eating food because the whole process is destroyed. There's something direct about the eating process. <laughs> do you think like food tv kills it like with all this like all these shows where we're you know like constantly talk i mean c.s lewis and and i think it's one of his maybe it's in mere christianity or something he says like he's talking about lust and he said you know we would think it really strange you know he's talking about strip clubs we think it really strange if a bunch of people sat in a room and we slowly unveiled uh, the, a curtain and it was a whole like turkey or a roast with all the, with all the things he thinks that's absurd. Now that's what we do. Like, it's yeah. food porn. I mean, actually, he's using it as an absurd analogy. We actually do it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I I, think the food shows are a problem. Um, it's also like it's objectified um, food as a thing, and people watch food being made. They have no intention of doing anything, if you see what I mean. <laughs> it's distancing them, uh, even as it's supposedly introducing them to things. Um I, I think C.S. Lewis is a very subtle thinker. I mean, it's interesting that you quoted him a few times there. A lot of philosophers do not respect C.S. Lewis because he was a Christian, partly. A lot of philosophers have an inbuilt prejudice against anyone who's a Christian. Yeah, and also he's religious and also he's a generalist, right? He, I mean, his, his background is ancient languages, but he's just, he wrote about everything. And, you know, yeah. he, he, and I, I feel like, we have a prejudice against generalists because yeah. cuz yeah. if you proffer an argument that's bold some specialist can always poke a hole in the footnote and then you know i mean we we yeah. there's a kind of built-in prejudice against people that think big thoughts yeah yeah also i think that links to the, what we were saying earlier which is about people want things to be black and white and true and false the generalist tends to say things that uh, are are interesting or um often true rather than absolutely true um whereas the specialist was saying actually when you look at it, it it's absolutely true only by in virtue of having almost no practical relevance right there's no existential import you kind of you, you can you you can say something very 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 true but very 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 small yeah yeah and and, and so that, there's a lot of the um i think the food debate is um conducted in a way that is, is speaking past people, um, uh, speaking past their needs and, and also their desires. And what we really would do better is to talk in a general way about food. Um, Michael Pollan says that. He says, you know, we should imagine a conversation with grandma. <laughs> but instead of that, we've headed off for these specialists with their talk about triglycerides and things. You know, it's, it's a very extraordinary the technical language that is accepted um in, in even on cookery programs you know <laughs> all right martin last question what's your next meal going to be what do you next meal you sit down do you have it planned or no uh, well in terms of meals i i find it always I, I don't know if it's a bad habit but i always like to wait till the absolute last moment and i like to just think what i feel like at that moment um i know people talk about cooking in advance some people talk about batch cooking i was looking at that on one of the websites saying how you make a batch and you eat it for a week i can't stand the idea of having my meals planned out for a week well i'll tell you you that you you practice what you preach i mean you're present too you know that's a that's a beautiful thing and and your book is a great book i i'd encourage anybody 
to read it, even if you're not that interested in food, I think Therefore I Eat, I feel like, is also a great introduction to why philosophy still has relevance. So thanks, thanks for writing much. it. Oh, thanks very much. That's yeah, great talking. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Martin for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, I Think Therefore I Eat. You will not be sorry, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.